We've been discussing the Wheel of Sharp Weapons, written by Dharma Rakshita, which uh, is uh, included in the collection of mind training texts. It seems to be the forerunner of them, and it was uh, studied, learned by uh, Atisha from his teacher, Dharma Rakshita, and uh, later it was transmitted to Tibet and passed on through the uh, lineage of uh, the Kadampa tradition through Dramdumba and then through all the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. The uh, text speaks about uh, the practice of giving and taking, Donglen, taking on the sufferings of others and uh, giving them uh, happiness, freedom from these sufferings, and eventually the enlightened state of the Buddha. And what is uh, the main focus here, as we find later on in the mind training tradition, as in uh, the seven uh, part mind training text by Geshe Chikawa, is uh, doing Donglen with the uh, three poisonous attitudes, which are the causes deriving from grasping for uh, possibly existent self that uh, then bring on our compulsive behavior of karma, which uh, produces as it's uh, ripening our suffering. So these three poisons of our longing desire or attachment or greed, they sort of come together in one package, anger and naivety. And as is uh, uh, usually mentioned in the various uh, meditation texts, the greatest obstacle to concentration and uh, uh, deeper meditation is this uh, longing desire for uh, uh, most strongly the one that's biologically driven, so the one for sexual pleasure. And the uh, text uh, goes into, uh, uh, in its main parts, the discussion of the things that uh, prevent us from being able to do this Donglin practice and be of help to others, which is our the suffering that we experience as a result of our uh, compulsive, destructive behavior. So compulsively, we, uh, well, what happens is that uh, we feel like doing something and without discriminating and so on, without even knowing actually what the consequences would be. So we're naive about that. We compulsively enter into situations which we uh, either repeat previous patterns of behavior or we get into situations that, uh, in which others act in a way toward us which is similar to the way that we destructively acted toward others in the past. And uh, here, Shanti, uh, Dharma Rakshita points out that uh, when we uh, experience others acting toward us in a very unpleasant uh, way that uh, we need to recognize that this is the ripening of our previous pattern of uh, acting in certain destructive ways similar to that toward others 
And so we need to stop doing that and act instead in, a, uh, in an opposite way. So this gives us uh, a very helpful indication of uh, how to modify our behavior, to notice, uh, to give us uh, some indication of what to look for in our own behavior, which is uh, destructive, which is bringing about these circumstances that uh, uh, not only are they uh, painful toward us, for us, but uh, they also prevent us from helping others. So uh, all of this uh, discussion of karma that uh, we have in the text is all um, aimed at uh, being able you know, for us to uh, uh, overcome these uh, negative effects, these detrimental effects of our uh, previous karmic behavior so that we can be of best help to others and practice this donglen, practice to help them. <coughs> and uh, we uh, saw that uh, the uh, cause, you know, the underlying cause behind this uh, destructive behavior that is uh, behind these three poisonous uh, emotions or toxic emotions that bring on our destructive behavior is our grasping for a true self. Uh, true here in the sense that uh, uh, for um, those who do not have the deepest uh, insight and realization of voidness or emptiness, it seems as though what we experience as the uh, self is the true self, but uh, truly established, but uh, that is not the case. So uh, such a, a so-called truly established self doesn't exist at all, doesn't correspond to reality. So when we believe that we exist in the manner of this truly established self, then we get self-cherishing. Self-cherishing is considering ourselves as this uh, sort of impossible, solidly existent entity as being the most important one, one that uh, we uh, only want to uh, take care of. So that brings on selfishness, self-preoccupation, um, you know, so many different uh, aspects of it that we describe in our uh, Western psychology, and we ignore others. So in the tradition of equalizing and exchanging self from others, self with others, which is where we find the Donglen practices, then there's a, a great emphasis on uh, seeing the disadvantages of self-cherishing, which is emphasized here in this text, and uh, the advantages of cherishing others, which then helps us to uh, become motivated to practice this uh, Donglen practice of uh, really wanting to take on the sufferings and difficulties of others. So now we're up to part three in uh, this text. And uh, here Dharmarakshita identifies now the true enemy that is causing us to bring so much harm onto ourselves. This is our grasping for a truly established self. We uh, project it, and uh, our minds project it. It makes this uh, appearance of a truly established self. And then we have uh, what's usually called ignorance. Ignorance is uh, 
defined in two different ways. I prefer to call it unawareness. We are, because ignorance sounds as though we're stupid, and it's not that we're stupid, but uh, either we uh, don't know how things uh, exist, so we just don't know that this appearance doesn't correspond to uh, how things actually uh, exist. And then uh, the other definition is that uh, we uh, take it or believe it to exist in a way which is opposite from uh, the way that it actually does exist. And so this is, uh, oh, we have these, uh, this grasping, grasping for the truly established self is, uh, as I explained yesterday, has uh, two aspects because that word which is translated as grasping is also the word which uh, means to just take something as an object, as a cognitive object. And so uh, the uh, two steps here are that uh, when our mind makes uh, this uh, false deceptive appearance that uh, because our mind is limited, it's um, filled or under the control of these this continuous habit of uh, making this sort of projection, then we take that as an object of cognition, so it appears to us, and you know, we perceive it, it feels like that, and then the second aspect is that we take that, this is what's usually called grasping, uh, the, you know, at least the connotation of the English word to grasp, you take it to correspond to reality, so you believe it, you believe that this is really how I exist, and this is what we need to uh, overcome to start with. And the more that we uh, perceive the absence of any actuality that corresponds to what our mind makes appear, in other words, the, when we focus more and more on that voidness, that absence, the total absence, then it breaks the inertia of our mind giving rise to this type of appearance and the more that we are able to focus non-conceptually, that's what it means non-conceptually, on this uh, uh, lack of uh, truly established existence, then uh, eventually our mind will stop projecting it. Maybe I should uh, mention just uh, as an aside what we mean by non-conceptual cognition, and uh, to understand that we have to know what conceptual cognition is. Conceptual cognition means uh, to cognize something, cognize is the most general word to be aware of something, through a category (coughs) that's sometimes translated as universal or generality, but I don't find these uh, terms terribly uh, useful. It's a category. A category is like a, uh, a box in which we uh, put things in. So, for instance, we have the category of apple, and you have you know, so many pieces of fruit, and you, you know, we look at things through, you know, oh, category, uh, the category apple, and there are names which are designated onto the category in various different languages, and then those names are designated onto the items that we fit into the category. 
So when it comes to apple or dog or cat or something like that, uh, or me, then it uh, is a little bit, uh, what should we say, it's a bit easier to uh, see how it fits into this category. So as I gave the example uh, of uh, all these pictures of ourselves over the span of our life, we fit all of that into the box and give it the name me. And in each lifetime it has an individual name. Now, it starts to become a little bit more vague when we talk about emotions, love, you know, well, you have a box called love and you have a box called like. I love you or I like you. So, and everybody has different feelings. <laughs> they experience different emotions. And which box do we put it in? You know, this becomes very interesting. When does what we feel <laughs> towards somebody no longer fit into the box of I like you and now fits into the box I love you? So, this depends, of course, on the defining characteristic, the definition that we give to the box, whether or not something fits into it. Now, the problem with so conceptual thinking is to think in terms of these categories, putting things into boxes, and definitions are either personal definitions or they're definitions from the dictionary, because we have words associated with these categories, but uh, you don't necessarily have words associated with them. The dog perceives things through categories. You know, the cow, still, you know, my barn, my, uh, you know, the dog, my master. Uh, they have uh, these categories, but they don't necessarily have um, words associated with them. Food, you know, this type of uh, category. Now, the problem with uh, perceiving things through categories is that uh, uh, is if we think of them in terms of boxes, things don't exist in boxes. It's just a convention. You know, there's a convention of love and like, but we just experience a whole spectrum of emotions, and everybody experiences something different, and we experience something different every time that we experience anything. But the appearance. You know, that conceptual cognition gives is that things actually exist in a, in a box, in this box, and they fit there. They truly fit in this box. And there's something on the side of the object that establishes it as fitting into this box. And it's usually the defining characteristic. Because uh, if we think of the five aggregates, one of the aggregates, which is uh, often called recognition, which is not a good translation for it, it's distinguishing. We distinguish something from everything else around it. So you distinguish something from others. So I distinguish something in this photo that uh, enables me to say that it's me. Or I distinguish something in uh, you know, me and not anybody else. Or when we are perceiving things, a sense field, you know, these color shapes 
I, you know, put them together and perceive, you know, something that distinguishes it from the wall and from the cushion and from other people around. I mean, it functions all the time. Otherwise, we're just seeing a field of pixels and we're not just seeing pixels. But, as I said, when you imagine things to exist in boxes, truly established as being in that box, then it seems as though the defining characteristic is on the side of the object. But it's not. The defining characteristic is projected together with the box. You have a box love, you have a box like someone, and we have defined what the dictionary has defined what it is, so it's a convention, and then you project it onto the object. So, how do you establish conventionally what something is? It's in terms of this mental labeling, it's called. So there's nothing on the side of the object that can establish that it, uh, that it exists and conventionally exists as you know, this emotion or that emotion or me or you, like that. So this of course is uh, not very easy to understand something that we need to digest. But when we have non-conceptual cognition, don't think that non-conceptual cognition means simply to stop the voice in your head. And that if your head, you know, if it's quiet without blah, 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 that then you have achieved a non-conceptual state. That's just the very first step in getting toward a non-conceptual state because we have so many uh, non-verbal projections our prejudices, our likes all these sort of things are non-verbal and yet we project them all the time so that's conceptual the box of, you know, foreigner or something like that. And then we have all sorts of associations with it, our defining characteristics and the qualities that we assign to it. That's another insight that uh, one needs to get, that all these qualities and, you know, good, bad, etc. are also projected. They're not established on the side of the object. So to be non-conceptual, a non-conceptual state is to perceive something not through the medium of a category or a box. In our simple language, ordinary language, we would say that uh, uh, what we're talking about here with conceptual cognition is to have some idea of something and you perceive things in terms of your idea of what it should be or what it is. 
I have an idea of what love is. I have an idea of you. And when I see you, I fit that into this idea. And so what uh, we're aiming for is not, and ideas, of course, are like preconceptions. I have a preconception of how you're going to behave or something like that. I have an idea of how you've behaved before, and that's my preconception that you're going to fit into this box again. Because it's established on your side. You're that kind of person. I'm that kind of person. We have that about ourselves. Now, conventionally, of course, there are patterns. So we don't want to deny or refute the conventional truth. But another way of uh, translating conventional truth or conventional, you know, more literally in terms of the Tibetan term and the Sanskrit term, is that it's superficial. It hides something that is deeper, sort of the surface. On the surface, it appears as though you truly, you know, I truly am this kind of person. But on a deeper level, I'm not established like that from my own side. It's just established like that in terms of what a concept refers to. But it's not merely a concept. Me, I, the self, is not just a concept. And that if you became non-conceptual, then there's no me, that I don't exist anymore. Well, that's absurd. You know, the Zen master would smack you with a stick if you said that. You know, of course you're sitting here and you're meditating. It's not that nobody is here, or that it's not you, it's somebody else. But how do you establish that it's me? Now, the lower, the less sophisticated schools of uh, Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist tenet systems, they're called, say that uh, things re- are truly established. Categories maybe aren't truly established because they're just conceptual, they're just, you know, from the mind. But uh, this is the Sautrantika school, that things are objectively truly established because they function. And Dharma Rakshata, who specialized in the Vaibhashika view, doesn't mean necessarily that this was his final view, but uh, he was a great teacher of that. They say that even these categories are uh, truly existent because they function. They function as an object of cognition. Higher schools say no. Um, they don't do anything. Category doesn't do something. But things are truly established because they function. They, they, they produce an effect. And you can see it. But uh, when we say that things are not truly established, what that means is that uh, uh, you know, just because it appears to you that something functions doesn't mean that 
you know, that appearance is, corresponds to reality. It appears that you are a really annoying person and it functions to make me really angry with you. Well, that doesn't establish that you are truly a, you know, an annoying person, does it? But it functions. Because it appears like that. It functions toward us in our experience. So this is refuted. So when we say no true self, we're saying that, you know, what appears to us to be truly established from the side of the object is not. So when we have conceptual cognition, it's only in terms of mental labeling with concepts that you can establish that something conventionally is this or that. So when we mentally label me onto all these pictures, it's the basis for labeling, that me, which is you know, the category me and then the word me that's designated on that category, that refers to something. It refers to me. It doesn't refer to you and it doesn't refer to nobody. It refers to me. But it doesn't correspond. This, this is what is absent. There's something that corresponds in a box that we can actually pinpoint and point to and say that, you know, there it is, me, established, as we said, this other word, mikten in uh, Tibetan, that it is holding up from the side of the object what we perceive. There's nothing there holding it up that corresponds to the category or the word. <coughs> but the category and word refers to something. So we need to make this distinction between what categories and words refer to conventionally and something that would actually correspond, you know, in the box. There it is. Voidness is the absence of something on the side of the, in the box, in a box that establishes that this exists, that proves it, that, 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 that makes it exist as what it is, conventionally. And of course, that mental labeling could be accurate or inaccurate, depending on general convention. If uh, you know, I put everything in the category of a blur, because I have taken my glasses off, well, other people wouldn't agree that uh, you're a blur. So, I mean, there needs to be some sort of <laughs> agreement <laughs> in terms of convention. You know, there are various criteria on the side of the mind that uh, establishes the, whether 
the, that conventional truth of what things are is conventionally accurate or inaccurate. So we have that. There are many levels, of course. Well, why don't we take a moment to just think about that? I mean, that's pretty profound, perhaps, what I uh, just explained. But I think an easy example, because it's pretty obvious, is our emotions and the boxes that we put them in and how they really are conventions. The one between liking someone and loving someone. And is there really a dividing line solidly established on the side of my feelings? That now it's crossed that line <laughs> and now what I'm feeling is in a different box. Or is that just mentally created? And there's a general convention because there are all these songs about, you know, I love you and all of that. Nevertheless, we feel something. That's the point. Nevertheless, we do feel something. It's not that I feel nothing.
Okay. I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on this, but uh, this is very essential, especially here. He's saying, you know, that we've recognized our true enemy. So you have to recognize in order to refute something, as it's said, in order to shoot a, a, uh, an arrow into a target, you have to see the target. So in order to refute the, uh, this false me, we need to be able to recognize it, identify it in our own experience. So how do you recognize it? How do you identify it? So we go through the uh, so-called lower tenant systems, the uh, different Buddhist philosophical positions, and what they refute to start with, and we feel this, is that uh, me, you know, the self, is permanent, which means not that it uh, is eternal, because Buddhism also says that the self is eternal, no beginning and no end, but uh, that uh, it uh, is unaffected by anything, it never changes. Some sort of solid you know, thing that doesn't change, it's partless, and it uh, can exist independently of a body and mind, specifically in liberation and moksha, you know, then it's free of rebirth and, and still solidly exists somewhere. So I think this is easier to understand if we go back to our example of a whole in parts. See, if we distinguish between what in these lower systems are called uh, objective entities and metaphysical entities, you know, objective does things and metaphysical doesn't do anything, you know, the categories. So in that classification system, the self is objectively real. We do things. I look at you, I see you, I eat, I walk. It does things. It's not just a concept, it's not just a category. So a whole and parts are also objectively real from this point of view. So if the parts are changing all the time, Let's say a car, to use uh, Chandrakirti's example. The parts are changing all the time, or ourself is a better example here. That uh, the parts, you know, the body and uh, the emotions and what I'm perceiving and, uh, you know, my understanding, the attention I'm paying to things, I mean, all of that is part of the whole, isn't it? And all of that is changing all the time. So if the parts, the basis for this is called imputation. You know, mental labeling is with categories, designation is with words, imputation is just with, you know, like whole on the parts, or self on the aggregates. Very different, even though the Tibetan word is the same for certain reasons, they have something in common. But nevertheless, my body is changing all the time. Nothing stays the same throughout our life. So 
If that's changing, if the parts are changing, how can the whole be something which is static and doesn't change? That makes no sense. And if the whole is on the basis of the parts, then you can't say the whole has no parts. Because it's dependent on the parts. And you can't say that the whole can exist separately from the parts. So likewise, me is changing all the time because it's imputed on a body that's changing all the time and feelings are changing all the time and emotions and you know, perceptions, everything's changing all the time. And there are all these parts, you know? Even conventionally we say my family life and my work life and my sport life and you know, all of that. There are parts to us, parts to your personality. We always say that. So it's not that we are some solid entity that never changes, you know, that me, in all of these pictures, me, solid, like that. And it means always changing, like that. And can't exist separately from you know, the body and mind and feelings and so on. So that's one level. On the second level, that type of me can't be known separately from the parts. See, the first one is the belief in a soul, as is defined in the non-Buddhist Indian schools. You know, there's a soul that is never changes and is partless and you know, with liberation, that soul, this Atman, will go to moksha, liberation. So you have to be taught that. The dog wouldn't think that. The baby wouldn't think that. You have to be taught it and believe it. And then you have, you know, you imagine that it's this kind of me that is experiencing suffering and the causes of suffering and can be liberated and would be the one that you know has to gain understanding. So you want to, and then you get disturbing emotions based on believing that's me, that that's how I am. So we have all these doctrinally based disturbing emotions, doctrinally based you know problems. First, you want to get rid of that. Automatically arising is that I can be known separately from the parts, from the basis of imputation. And that automatically arises. You know, you think we experience, for example, voice in our head. So that's me. As if, but you're not knowing me, separate from the voice, some sort of basis for it. Know my, I want, you know, I'm trying to really know myself, you know, know yourself. Well, how? You can only know yourself by knowing things about the self. You can't just know the self, that self. I want people to, the example that I always use is, you know, 
I want people to love me for myself, not for my body, not for my mind, not for my money, not for anything like that. Just love me for me. As if you could, as if that me could be loved separately from everything else, or at least something else. So that automatically arises. That's how things appear. So that me, you know, I want to be happy. You know, a permanent solid me or a me that can be known by itself. I want to be happy. And then you have longing desire. Then you act in destructive ways. So this as well has to be refuted. When you work with voidness, you want to, you know, peel the onion, get rid of, you know, more and more subtle, subtler and subtler levels of the projection. We project that we exist that way, that we're established that way. The mind, because it doesn't know any better, ignorance doesn't know, then because of the habits of doing this beginninglessly, That's how it makes things appear. You know, mental activity. Mental activity is the rising of mental holograms and cognition of that. You know, even from a Western point of view, it's like that. Light rays come in and it's, you know, transmitted as electric and chemical impulses to various parts of the brain and that it's basically a mental hologram that we perceive and that's what it means to see something or to know something so it's not just the mental hologram of what something appears to be conventionally superficially but also what establishes it as being that, as existing like that. So it's not that there is some permanent, you know, not never changing, partless, independently existing me that you have this mental hologram, you know, that establishes this mental hologram of me. Think of yourself, think of me. How do you think of yourself? Even if you just think me, there's the word me. You can't think me without some basis. Can you? Either your body, personality, doesn't have to actually appear. The word will appear in your head. Me. Or some sort of feeling, even if you won't, don't want to do it verbally. Some feeling of me. 
there's a basis. But we think that that is solid, to put it in very simple words. It's on that basis of thinking, you know, of a solid me, that we get these disturbing emotions and the, the destructive behavior. Because that solidly existent, you know, self-established is the term that I like to uh, use. Established by a self-nature on the side of the object that sort of is generating it, you know, sort of making it, there, holding it up. just had music from the phone. So then, this is a nice example. Uh, what box do you put it in, conventionally? <laughs> you can put it in the box of annoyance. You know, you get an emotion that's, that's based on that. You know, obstacle, hindrance, it's a box and a concept of what, you know, a hindrance is. Or you could put it in the box of just music, that's all that it is. No judgment whatsoever, it's just music. Or it's just sound. Or it's an illustration, put it in the box, an illustration of what we're talking about. So you change a potentially negative circumstance into a positive one by putting it in a different box. It's mind training, attitude training, change your attitude of how you perceive things, while knowing that things don't inherently, inherently means from its own side, you know, something inside it, that fits in the box, that makes it, you know, exist in the box. We're giving the definition of the box, you know. And then all the emotional overlay on top of that. Oh, how wonderful that that, you know, that your phone rang. <laughs> or how annoying, how horrible that your phone rang. All depends on what box we put it in and how you define the box. A category, doesn't it? So the same thing in terms of me. What kind of box do we put me in? And how do we define that? And what qualities do we ascribe to that? And I'm always that way. It doesn't matter what happens, I'm like that. And it's not that there are different parts, so different, you know, it's solid, so, you know. Everything about me is no good. Or everything about me is wonderful. And that's me, you know, I'm not, you know, I found myself, I'm trying to find myself, be myself. And you are preventing that, so I get angry with you. 
or if you know I have you around all the time, that'll you know really establish it. <coughs> and then we act in destructive ways. And then we get into situations in which others act destructively toward us. And all of that prevents us from being able to help others. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about trying to identify the enemy. What's causing us uh, all our problems is belief that we exist in the manner of this impossible self what others would appear to be, to, to think that that's truly the self, that's truly me. Truly me, that is, never changing, has no parts, solid, you know, monolith, can exist independently, can be known independently, independently of what a concept refers to. From its own side, you're nasty. Or from your own side, my own side, I'm so beautiful, I'm so wonderful. You're so beautiful, so wonderful. If I you know, marry you, all my problems will go away. I'll be the happiest person in the world if you'll say that you'll marry me. I mean, come on. <laughs> Romantic love. So, you know, there's this subtler and subtler levels of what's impossible. So, Dharma Rakshita says, verse 49, that really is the way that it is. So, I've caught the enemy. I've caught the thieving bandit who laid in ambush and deceived me, the fraud who, disguised as me, then cheated me. Aha, this is grasping at a true self, there is no doubt. So it's this phantom, in a sense, that appears as though this is truly me and that I'm trying to make secure and defend and assert and, you know, all these sort of things. That's causing me the problem. Doesn't mean that we don't do anything in life. We do. But without being... We have a nice word in, our, in English and perhaps in your language as well, self-conscious. Don't be so self-conscious about it. About anything. Just do it. Not, you know, me, me, and I, you know, I worry what other people will think, and, you know, all of that. We need to be considerate, but not obsessed about, you know, me and what they're going to think about me. Everybody's looking at me. You know, the teenager that has acne and, you know, imagines that everybody really is disgusted by that and looking at them. People don't care obsessed about themselves. <laughs> you know, why do we think that we are so important that everybody's looking at us? 
not important, but we think we're important, because to me, I'm important. And I should be the center of attention, and people should listen to me and do what I tell them to do. Answer my message immediately. <laughs> this type of thing. So, we need to apply opponents to destroy this enemy. So, verse 50. Now, Yamantaka, raise over your head the sharp weapon of your actions. Circle it three times around your head in a forceful way. Plant your two feet wide apart for the two truths. Glare with your eyes wide open for method and wisdom. Bear your fangs for the four forces and perceive the foe. So, this is filled with all sorts of terms and that we need to fill in the references. Circle three times is with the correct understanding of conventional truth, deepest truth, and the two truths simultaneously. Not easy. But uh, conventional truth of things is how it appears. It appears in a deceptive way as if it were truly established. So conventional truth is deceptive. However, it can be either accurate or inaccurate. So it doesn't mean that everything is inaccurate. Deepest truth is that it doesn't exist in the way that it appears to exist. And when you focus on the absence of an actual something corresponding to it, the deceptive appearance, you know, you can't focus, you can't have it appear simultaneously in our limited minds that it appears like this, and it's not this. It's not appearing like this. You can't have the two at the same time. As a Buddha, however, we're able to perceive the two simultaneously. So what in the world does that mean in the Buddha's omniscient? Go back. Again, this is just my own understanding. It might not be correct. But an analogy, remember we spoke about how uh, we have, I'll give two analogies. One is a little bit simpler. The simpler one is that, uh, as, uh, what was his name, Robert Feynman, or someone like that, said that uh, if you uh, consider this room, in this room, there is present every single uh, radio station uh, website, you know, the, the electromagnetic or whatever it is, uh, frequencies of every single telephone call, every single, you know, message that's ever been. All of that is here, present in this room, and depending on the device that we have, you know, our limited mind and so on, we can get one of them to appear on our screen. And you could get any message, you could get any website, you could get, you know, any TV program, radio program, etc. 
on your screen. And it would appear as though that's the only thing that's going on and it's truly established there, you know, not dependent on parts and all the people who made the website and anything like that, you know, just bam, there it is, self-established. And that's our limited perception of things, that's limited awareness. We have collapsed, this is the other image of a quantum field, into one thing. Buddha doesn't collapse the field. Buddha's aware of the whole thing simultaneously. And it is devoid of being, you know, collapsed. Because things don't, that's not the way that, you know, the actuality, that there's only one, you know, website or one message or one telephone call that's going on at this moment. Whether this really accurately describes a Buddha's omniscient mind or not, and the limited mind, I don't know, but at least for myself, I find that it's a very helpful image. That uh, when we enter into situations. Don't collapse it into my preconception of what's going on. Try to get all the, the information. It's like in uh, family therapy. That, you know, how the child perceives the family problem, how the mother perceives it, how the father perceives it, they're all valid. You have to take all of that into consideration. It's not only, you know, the father's point of view. Even though to the father it appears like that. And to the mother it appears like something completely different. And to the child, of course, it completes completely different how it appears. Is there a problem in the family? Yes, there's a problem in the family. Where is the problem? Is it in any of the parts that you can't? located. The defining characteristic of the problem, is it in the child, is it in the mother, is it in the interaction, well where is the interaction, is it in every moment of the interaction, or are there parts? What's the problem? But there is a problem. It's not that there is no problem. And then you try to see what factors affect the situation and what you can do to you know, work within cause and effect. There's nothing solid, nothing on the side of the family that establishes this is a problematic family. We have a category, problem. How in the world do you define that? Something else, but it has a definition, otherwise it would be in the category of not a problem. <laughs> so we've distinguished which box do we put it in, problem or not a problem, based on mental labeling with a category of problem, with a definition that either the dictionary has or, you know, this textbook has. So, you know. 
Every culture will make a different definition. Every psychologist will make a different definition. Can you find it on the side of the object? Well, I don't know. We look for it, we perceive something, but that, you know, you distinguish it, you know, from this and that. Aggregate of distinguishing works. But what you distinguish is, again, established by convention. So, circle three times, correct understanding of conventional truth, that things appear to be what they are, but that's deceptive, that it's actually established from its own side like that. Deepest truth that it doesn't, you know, the voidness, the absence, total absence of, you know, something actually corresponding to, you know, the way that it appears to exist, and the conventional, you know, and deepest truth simultaneously, that it appears like this, and nevertheless it uh, doesn't exist that way, it functions. Functions, okay. See, the problem is that when we focus on voidness, that absence appears. Like we were saying the absence of the apple on the table. Nothing appears, but you know what it is. It's the absence of the apple. So nothing appears, and we know that it's the absence of truly established existence. Now, when, and the appearance doesn't appear, you know, of an apple or me on the basis of parts, my body or something like that, my name. Now, when subsequent realization, you know, after you come out of this total absorption in your meditation, things appear, appears to be truly established. But implicitly, we know that it doesn't exist that way, that absence, but that absence doesn't appear at the same time. So this is the problem, is that we want to be able to have some appearance and the, uh, uh, the, that absence at the same time. So it can't be an appearance of something solid. And the absence of something solid can't appear at the same time. So you have to get the appearance of things dependently arising, you know, like this, everything is in this room, not encircled in plastic, you know, each website, each telephone call is, you know, encircled in plastic and separated from everything else. Not like that either, but they're all present without that appearance of it being, you know, encapsulated in plastic, something like that. This is two truths simultaneously. Eyes wide open for method and wisdom. So we have conventional bodhicitta with respect to conventional truth or appearance. It's the appearance of everybody. They appear to be truly established. But I want to attain enlightenment to be able to help them. So conventional bodhicitta. And deepest bodhicitta with respect to the deepest truth. They're not established 
the way that they appear. So the two eyes wide open for this. Uh, two feet for the two truths. Four fangs. The four fangs are usually explained here in the mind training uh, text as the four forces for purification. You know, we have this in Vajrasattva practice, regret. You know, you admit, openly admit that uh, what we've done was uh, a mistake. I think it's important to admit that it's a mistake, not that it was bad and I'm bad, but I did it out of not knowing. Or I was just overwhelmed by my habits. So I wasn't thinking. So then we regret that we acted that way rather than feeling guilty. You know, I really wish I didn't act that way. I didn't do that. Really wish I didn't say that. And promise to try our best not to repeat it and then reaffirm our safe direction and bodhicitta. You know, what I'm trying to do with my life, I'm trying to go in the meaningful direction indicated by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and I'm trying to attain enlightenment to help everybody. So re reaffirm that, and then apply the opponent force, and the deepest one is the understanding of voidness. In the Yamantaka teachings itself, the four fangs of Yamantaka are to pierce through the four maras. Maras called demonic forces or whatever it comes from the Sanskrit word death. And uh, so the four are death, disturbing emotions, the aggregates, and the son of the gods, which are incorrect views. These are things which really make hindrances. Mara the ones that make hindrances. You think about it, death, it's horrible, you know, you spend all your life practicing and, you know, you finally get a little bit of understanding and so on and then you die. <laughs> and you have to start all over again. You know, maybe there's some instinct that will be a little bit easier. But, I mean, you have to be a baby again, you have to learn to be toilet trained, you have to go to school again. All these sort of things, I mean, really, what a drag. So, death. And then the disturbing emotions, of course, we've discussed that. That, uh, you know, how can I help you if I, you know, just want to get you to bed with me or I want, you know, I'm angry with you because uh, you didn't listen to what I said or I ignore you because I'm too busy. These sort of things are the disturbing emotions and the aggregates, you know, I'm sick, I'm old, I'm, I have a cold, you know, I can't help you now, this sort of uh, thing, and the son of the gods, the wrong views, son of the gods, I mean, gods referring to the non-Buddhist um, deities that represent the non-Buddhist uh, views, which in general could just be, you know, um, views that don't, you know, it's not that they're totally useless, but that they don't lead to liberation and enlightenment, actual liberation and enlightenment. You know, they say it does lead to liberation, but that's not really liberation, this type of, of thing. It's usually, you know, and this is pointed out very strongly in the teachings on the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, that uh, what happens is that uh, there's too much emphasis on shamatha, 
know, which you have in the non-Buddhist teachings as well, and attaining these dhyanas, you know, these higher and higher trances of absorption, and you mistake that for liberation. Because you don't feel anything. So, this is a hindrance. You know, you have the disturbing emotions you want to get rid of. Talk about uh, you know more detail of the path. This is the disturbing emotions on the plane of you know our desirable objects. It's us. You know, I'm attached to you know you and to money and to my phone and so on. And I'm annoyed with traffic and all these other things. But then there are the disturbing emotions which are associated with the you know, and it's it's that me that's experiencing all of this, you know, in terms of desires. But then there's the disturbing emotions associated with these higher planes of existence, you know, being absorbed in all these higher meditations because you've become overly fascinated with uh, concentration. And then you think that that's the me, you know, and I'm very attached to, you know, this state. I don't want to leave it and uh, don't interrupt me this type of thing. And that's the me, you know, that is liberated, the one that is absorbed in this trance. Where now I don't feel anything, or now I just feel bliss. And my mind is so sharp, you know, wow, fantastic. So, you know, there, the, you know, just because, and this is what is pointed out, you know, the wrong view that, you know, to get to this type of state, that this is liberation. It can be useful. It's not saying that it's useless. But watch out. Don't become obsessed with it and, you know, think that this is it. This is, you know, my final aim. So, we have uh, the four maras for the four fangs. Then Dharmarakshita goes on. O king of pure awareness mantras that torment the enemy, draw out the spoiler of our spiritual bonds who brings to ruin ourselves and others, that vicious savage called the demon of grasping at a true self, who, causing us to get struck by the sharp weapons of karma, has been making us run through the jungle of samsara without any control. Pure awareness mantras are those that uh, keep us according to definition, those that keep us mindful of discriminating awareness or wisdom, like the Prajnaparamita mantra, gati gati paragati parasamgati bodhisoha. The old Sirkin Rinpoche, my teacher, former one, used to say that there are three most powerful things in the universe. There is medicine, there is technology, and their mantras. So medicine can get rid of disease, technology can help us, you know, to get rid of ordinary t- type of suffering, but mantras? And I uh, never really understood that. But, uh, and I thought it had to do with, you know, working with your subtle energies and stuff like that with mantras. That's how I understood it. But, uh, the uh, reincarnation, the tuku, of Sirkin Rinpoche explained it to me. And he said, what it's referring to 
is, you know, look at the Heart Sutra. Heart Sutra says, you know, the, the mantra that can't be surpassed, you know, the mantra that gets rid of, you know, all suffering is the Prajnaparamita mantra, which is, you know, the stages of the understanding of voidness as you go through the five paths to liberation and enlightenment. And that's the reference, that the, that mantra, which is referring to, you know, the, 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 the process of the path, the deeper and deeper understanding of voidness and more familiarity with it, that's the most powerful thing. And a pure awareness mantra is a mantra that keeps us mindful of this pure awareness, this discriminating awareness. So then Dharmaraksha goes on, verse 52 and 53 and 54. Draw him out, draw him out, forceful Yamanzika. Batter him, batter him, pierce the enemy, a true self, right in the heart. Crash, really crash down, right on the head of this ruinous concept. Deal the death blow to the heart of this butcher, a true self, our foe. So what we want to do is to be forceful about it. We need to be forceful when we feel, you know, selfish. And, uh, I want this for me, not for, you know, I don't want to share it with you. I want to go ahead. You know, we act so selfishly and it is deeply ingrained in us. We have this very strong neural pathway, you know, for all our lifetimes we've been doing that. So, one has to be forceful with oneself. 53, hum, hum, produce miraculous emanations, O great Buddha figure, za, za, bind this enemy up tightly, pay, pay, free us, I beseech you from all our fetters, slash, slash, I beseech you, cut the knot of our grasping. This is Tibetan style of uh, writing. And uh, so we want, uh, you know, Yamantika to, appear in, you know, various forms, so that forceful form of discriminating awareness, you know, it's not as though it's some solid thing either, but uh, different emanations and different situations, you know, from within us, as if there was an us, you know, that's inside there, but it's not quite like that. But anyway, that uh, we want our understanding to manifest in different ways, in different situations, so that we apply the teachings, we apply the understanding. You have to be very flexible, skillful methods of uh, how you deal with uh, the various problems that come up. And then verse 54, come here, fierce Yamantika, you Buddha figure. Pray, burst right now, pow, pow, this bag of karma and five disturbing emotions of poison, which keep us stuck in the swamp of samsaric acts. So these forceful, Lines, I think, help us to, what should we say, get our energy up. Then there are many verses enumerating all the troubles that our self-grasping and self-cherishing have caused us and invoking Yamantika, the understanding of voidness, to smash it. So let's try, and these verses again, like we had in the previous section, are very, very helpful as topics of meditation. So let's try to meditate on one or two of these. And what we want to try to identify with them is how our 
grasping for a truly established self. In other words, imagining that I exist as this, you know, solid self-established entity and then the self-cherishing that comes from that, you know, that I'm so important, this me is so important, it should always have its way and, and everybody should like me and so on. Um, how that causes these problems. So this is a meditation on the disadvantages of grasping for a true self and the disadvantages of self-grasping. So, verse 56, let's work with this one. Our wish for happiness is enormous, yet we fail to build up a network of its causes. Our tolerance for unhappiness is little, yet our ambitious desires and greed are great. Crash, really crash down right on the head of this ruinous concept. Deal the death blow to the heart of this butcher, a true self, our foe. So we think about this, you know, I want to be happy, you know, I mean, it's an enormous motivating thing. I want to be happy, but I don't want to put the work into, you know, the causes for it. Why? Because I'm thinking of me, 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 and acting in all sorts of ways that are not going to bring about happiness because of selfishness. So I'm blocking it. You know, because the problem is that grasping for me and the self-cherishing our tolerance for unhappiness is little. You know, I don't want to, be, I don't want to have to, to put in the work, but our ambitious desires and greed are great. You know, I want so much that I'm not willing to put in the hard work. Me, me, me. You know, I'm so special. I, you know, I want things easy. I want things cheap, cheaply. That self-grasping and self-cherishing. So this is what is very, very helpful. You know, as it says, Shanti, Dharma Rakshita says it, Keshe Chekawa says it, put all the blame on one thing, self-cherishing, and then here deeper, self-grasping. That when we are unhappy, very, very helpful. Any time that you're unhappy, You know, there are many ways of saying it. You can say, well, so what? I'm unhappy. You, know, you just get on with what you have to do anyway. You know, I don't feel like going to work. So you go to work anyway. Or you can see it's because of self-grasping and self-cherishing that I'm feeling unhappy. I don't want to go to work. Me. I want to stay in bed. I want to, you know, look at my phone, because I might miss something. I don't want to sit here at the desk and work. <coughs> so whenever we're unhappy, even just on the level of poor me, that's, you know, classic cause of unhappiness, isn't it? Poor me, I'm lonely, I'm unhappy. Poor me, I don't feel like doing anything. It's me, 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 isn't it? So that's the true enemy. You stop being so obsessed about me and what I feel. Just do, 
terms of cause and effect, what needs to be done. Without making a big deal out of anything. So, let's uh, contemplate this verse. Our wish for happiness is enormous, yet we feel to build up a network of its causes. We want to be happy cheaply without having to do any work. Our tolerance for unhappiness is little, yet our ambitious desires and greed are great. I want more and more, but you know, I can't tolerate the, you know, the difficulty that's involved. Crash, really crash down right on the head of this ruinous concept. Concept, you know, category, me, me, me. Deal the death blow to the heart of this butcher, a true self, our foe.
Okay. So, what questions or comments do you have? Yeah. the word uh, naivete instead of ignorance. I wonder if you could comment on that a bit. Um, I use the word naivety because uh, it, uh, I think, conveys the flavor a little bit uh, more. You know, there are two terms in uh, Tibetan there's one which is usually translated as uh, ignorance, and for that I use uh, unawareness, that we just don't know, we're unaware. When uh, Wissenheit in German works much better. Um, we either don't know or we know in some sort of incorrect way, inverted way. That's the definition there. Now, uh, Naivety is a subcategory of that. If you look in the definitions in Abhidharma, this is, uh, first one is Marikpa, or Avidya in Sanskrit, and the second one is uh, uh, Dimuk, or Moha, in uh, Sanskrit. And for that, I uh, use naivety. It is uh, when uh, we have this uh, uh, ignorance or unawareness with uh, uh, in connection with uh, destructive behavior. It's one definition. Another one definition is when it is directed toward people. But uh, I find that that's uh, very useful. I use this in the sensitivity training that uh, we are naive or insensitive to our uh, the effect, uh, you know, there's two topics that we have unawareness about is cause and effect, behavioral cause and effect and how things exist. So I'm naive about how my behavior affects me, so in a destructive way, I'm naive about how my behavior affects you. You know? So I'm working, you know, never take a break and so on, that's going to be destructive to me. If I uh, come late, that's you know harmful to you. And then how we exist. So I'm also naive in the sense that uh, I don't realize that uh, uh, you might be busy, for example, or uh, uh, I think a classic thing is that uh, we uh, come home from work uh, or we're at home all the time and our partner comes home from work and it seems as though they just popped out of nowhere. That, uh, you know, where is my supper? You know, it doesn't, you're naive of the fact that they had to, so many things with the children and so on during the day as if it didn't exist, didn't happen. Or the person comes home from work and as if they, you know, didn't exist that they had their whole day in the office and it could have been a terrible day. You know, so we're naive about that, or naive about the fact that we're overtired, or that, uh, you know, I mean, these sort of things. So I think naivety, the sense of being insensitive, and so on, is, uh, fits more in terms of this being unaware in a situation that's destructive, that's harmful. Just to be sure I understand, 
Unwissenheit. Not knowing. You just don't know. You know, I, I didn't know that you were, you know, um, busy. I didn't know that uh, um, you would take offense at uh, what I said. I didn't know that. So it's not that I'm stupid, I just didn't know. And ignorance has this, in English, this strong thing that you're stupid, you're ignorant. Mm -hmm. Ignorance and awareness. Can you uh, use the microphone, please? Ignorance and awareness are two opposites, aren't they? I said unawareness. Not aware. You don't know, or you know incorrectly. I thought you would have time for me, but you didn't. I thought you would be, you know, home when I came to visit, but you weren't. So I knew it in an opposite way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering a bit about, the, you know, how to use words. Uh, so you here as a and you're a translator and when you're talking with students you refer to oh I use this word because in this dictionary or this but I'm wondering when well, you Well Abhidharma text it's yeah, usually I'm taking it from yeah, Abhidharma. You are very precise with words and you probably yeah. so I was wondering in your more like private life when you if you talk to for example a kid or an uncle um, uh, well, yeah, basically where I tend to use words because I'm not a professional translator. So I was wondering, do you then uh, pretty much ignore what uh, the, the dictionary translation is and use whatever words you think will give them the correct association? Or do you try to uh, like enforce or uh, like have them use the correct words um, like for me it feels uh, so much more important that people have the that I use whatever word I think they will connect with well so so does this make sense or? yeah I mean certainly when I speak with people I uh, um, try to be skillful and speak in a language uh, that they will, you know, a type of uh, terminology and so on that they'll understand. But that doesn't uh, mean that one needs to be, you know, imprecise or sloppy in one's terminology. There's a difference, of course, you know, the way that you speak to a child, the way you speak to an adult, or the way you speak to a teenager. These can be quite, you know, quite different. Where you speak to a professor, you know, where you speak to, you know, an, an uneducated person. You know, I'm not. I certainly don't try to uh, correct people. I'm not a grammar Nazi. I learned that. Used to be. <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, yes, I'm recovering from that. But uh, 
one needs to be uh, skillful in how you communicate, you know. Communication is uh, extremely important, you know. Buddha is praised for his, you know, skillful words with which he taught. This is what makes you, you know, and praises too, dependent arising. Tsongkhapath says, you know, you know, praising the Buddha, that, you know, what makes you so fantastic are your, your words, your words of dependent arising, and teaching. So you have to communicate. Yeah, anyone else? Verse 81, so now I have to get my text. I haven't memorized the text. I'm not versed in that. 81 is uh, our put down of high ones is heavy. We hold holy beings to be our foes. Since our lust is enormous, we eagerly take on young people as partners. Crash, really crash down right on the head of this ruinous concept, deal the death blow to the heart of this butcher, a true self, our foe. Um, we put down high ones. Our put down of high ones is heavy. Putting down, I mean, that's a colloquial word in English. To put them down means to criticize them and to put them down. You know, somebody who is holy being, you know, a great lama, or a great, you know, spiritual master. We criticize them, we, oh, they're not so good, and, you know, this and that, uh, like that, and we think of them as a threat to us. So they're our foe, you know, because they'll correct us, or, you know, these sort of things. And that's because we're worried about me, my reputation, and stuff like that, you know, there's somebody that is, uh, you know, competition is like that. It doesn't have to be a holy being. Somebody that's doing better than we are. And we feel threatened, so you want to put them down. You want to find their weak points and always, you know, talk about uh, their weak points rather than, you know, praising and admiring and feeling inspired by their strong points. So we regard them as an enemy, a threat to us. And since our lust is enormous, we eagerly take on young people as partners. So, you know, we're so attached to sex and to the body that even as an older person, you try to seduce young people. You know, as if, you know, I were still young and they would find me attractive as an old person. So again, there's this concept of a, of a solid me that is never changing. I mean, a lot, I speak as an old person, that uh, your self-concept, you know, is not at all associated with what you look like in the mirror. 
it's very hard to imagine, I'm sure you must experience, you know, the older people here, that it's very hard as an older person to imagine from the point of view of other people looking at you what they see. You don't think they see, you know, an old gray-haired or white-haired person. You still imagine that you look like, you know, a younger person. And with that type of thing, to go and try to seduce, you know, somebody in their 20s when you're in your 60s or 70s, it's absurd. So that's what it's talking about. You have this fixed idea of me that is not associated at all with how others perceive you, what you actually look like in the mirror. You know, it's only when you're tired that you feel your age. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> you know, you're just the same. I mean, that's, that's the deceptive appearance. It's just me. You don't think in terms of age, do you? You know, I can't believe that I'm, you know, going to be 73. You know, how can, you know, my sister says that she's 80. She just turned 80. I can't believe that I'm 80. Can you imagine me, 80, she says? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that. Deceptive appearance. As if there could be a me that you could know independently of the basis. Yeah, anything else? Somebody else. Uh, how this term self-grasping is uh, 
exemplified in the words in the verses that uh, follows uh, this. Um, introducing this uh, concept of uh, self-grasping. So, in a way, uh, these uh, philosophical reflections are, are there, but uh, not necessarily decisive for actually appreciating uh, these, uh, these uh, teachings. Well, I think that uh, self-grasping, this verse that you're referring to, 49, that really is the way that it is. So I've caught the enemy, I've caught the thieving bandit who laid in ambush and deceived me, the fraud who disguised as me, then cheated me. Aha! This is grasping at a true self, there is no doubt. I think that if you look in, in the Buddhist teachings, where you have the different uh, philosophical positions, the so-called tenet systems, that uh, you know, grasping for a self, you know, in the teaching of selflessness, anatta, and so on, these are uh, explained and understood on many different levels, progressively more su you know, subtler levels. And so likewise, I think you can have that on a non-philosophical level as well. You know, just uh, selfishness on the basis of thinking that I'm the most important one and I'm more important than you and I should get my way. You know, me first type of uh, attitude that doesn't have to have a deep philosophical basis. Selfishness arises automatically with uh, self-interest and so on. Survival of the individual, survival of the species, I mean it's sort of instinctive that's there. So I think we can understand these uh, verses and so on on many, many different uh, levels. Also, in terms of uh, Dharma Rakshita saying that uh, he upheld the Vaibhashika view and Maitri Yogi upheld the Sautrantika view and uh, Sirlingba upheld no, you know, the, you know, even a non-Buddhist view. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they necessarily, that was their deepest understanding and their own philosophical thing. It could mean either in the case of Vaibhashika and uh, uh, Sautrantika, that they were specialists in teaching that, in explaining the texts that uh, teach that. With Sulingba, it was the case that, you know, because in, in elsewhere it says that he taught conventional bodhicitta first, not deepest bodhicitta, which is that, uh, and if you're talking about bodhicitta, you can't be, you know, just Vaibhashika. Vaibhashika is a ter uh, Hinayana school, but uh, now my mind has gone blank. <laughs> Sir Lingba was saying that old persons problem that you know you don't have instant recall it takes a few seconds to the brain works more slowly that uh, you can practice this these teachings even while you think as a non-Buddhist you know so if you have conventional bodhicitta first you can have that while having all the you know false views of the self 
still I want to attain enlightenment in order to be able to benefit everyone. In order to do that, then I'm going to need deepest bodhicitta. I'm going to need to understand reality so that you can still practice lojong, you know, mind training, on the basis of still holding these non-Buddhist views. So similarly, you can practice this just holding the Vaibhashika view, you can practice it Sautrantika view, or you can practice it in a uh, Madhyamaka way. When you say grasping for a true self, true isn't actually, you know, Denzin and Daksin. I'd have to look at the text again to see whether it uses Daksin or Denzin, grasping for a self or grasping for uh, true, you know, truly established. I don't recall. I don't have the Tibetan text with me. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this session. So let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, let it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. Mm-hmm.